Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Hello, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim, and this is Italian Wine Club at Clubhouse. Uh, We've been doing this Ambassador's Corner for for how many episodes now? 32nd episode. We've been doing this more or less every day, and it is incredibly popular because, as you know, we replay this on Italian Wine Podcast. So some of the episodes, we had more than 5,000 listens. So I want to personally thank everybody um, who is part of the Ambassadors Corner, and of course, our Italian wine ambassadors at large. Of Oh, Sandra Taylor, hello. We have a call with the Magnum ladies on the 22nd. That's just, I'm just giving a shout out to Sandra Taylor, who I haven't seen in a very long time, a friend. And of course, we have some Italian wine ambassadors in the audience. Hopefully, they'll join in. Hey, Kevin, Slavic, Melissa... We have Eric, Paul, Bologna, hopefully some others will join in. Okay, so let's start this. Our mod squad for today is Ciao, Vittoria, Cece. <coughs> Ciao, Stevie. Oh my God, I love, I you make me laugh so, so, so much. Because tell tell everyone your um, handle. Um, my handle is... Um, Slutty spaghetti, but it's spelled S-L-U-T-T-I. Um, right. In so Italian, cool. they would say slutti spaghetti. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's How did that it. come about? Funny enough, it came about about uh, four years ago. I was working at Italy, actually. Oh, okay. Where, where, which Italy? In downtown New York, so in the financial district. Right. And so I was a storyteller, so I ran product demos and classes and whatnot. So my um, my boss and my coworker, we used to, you know, come up with recipes and make a lot of jokes about food. And then I don't know how I just came up with the word, like with the term like slutty spaghetti when we were trying to plan a class and they were like, you have to make that a thing. And then I tried to do it then, but I kind of lost interest and then I revived it last year. Like being slutty or what? No, no, no. <laughs> Um, it was it was more about and it still is more about kind of having an open appreciation for wine and food and kind of, you know, it's almost bouncing off the heat, you know, the hedonistic aspect of Italian food and wine culture or just Italian culture and allowing yourself to indulge uh, unapologetically in like, you know good food and and wine and experiences. So it's actually kind of taking away from that old school, you know, understand like perspective of what the word like slutty means. Yeah. I think it's hilarious. And you have such a great sense of humor. Listen, so what are you doing exactly? I know you write. Where do you write? Uh, Who do you write for? 
so in my my main job to pay the bills um, yeah you have I, a real job right because yeah. who the hell makes money just doing doing wine so i i work in basically the marketing field i i'm a freelancer but i work with multiple clients mostly actually in the food and beverage and hospitality industry so i do mostly content strategy so that's focused on you know building out blog strategies, social media strategies, and email marketing strategies. But writing-wise, um, I'm I'm still I work I kind of write for a variety of platforms. Currently, I'm a contributor to Chilled Magazine, which is a uh, beverage magazine, um, mostly catering to um, bartenders for the most part. And then I also write for a new UK magazine, uh, Glug. Uh, which just started, and they're very exciting. And then I also write for the Italy Edit, which is a fun Italian cultural magazine um, ran by this wonderful woman named Livia, and that's pretty fun as well. So those are probably the three that I consistently contribute to. Great. That sounds great. You will Maybe you can do like a small training course for um, our producers at Wine to Wine or something. We'll think of something to get mm-hmm. you on oh, board for awesome. Wine to Wine. So we, as you know, Victoria, we always ask the moderator why you've chosen Michael Sch- Schmelzer. How do you say that? How do you pronounce that, Michael? Schmelzer. Yeah, Schmelzer. Yeah, Schmelzer. As your favorite producer. Yeah, favorite producer is a big Are title. you sure? Yeah, <laughs> he's not, no, right? He's I'm not kidding. really your favorite producer. Tell me who you really I'm, is. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, I only joke about that because I think, to be totally transparent, my true introduction to Monte Bernardi and meeting Michael was very recent, um, but that doesn't take away, you know, from how great of an experience and how much I have respect for Monte Bernardi. Um, I think... Um, that Michael is contributing to a really inspiring and, and versatile future for Chianti Classico. And like, I'm in my work, I'm uh, really about understanding the roots and like tr- the traditions of, of food and wine. And I think that Michael really pays homage to those things um, in his um, in his winemaking. And uh, especially in a place like Chianti Classico, which is very famous, and often overlooked, I feel, um, after working in sales, um, as like, you know, people just will write it off at, like as being, oh yeah, it's County Classico, whatever. But really it's so versatile and from the soils to the winemaking styles. And um, I don't know, I just think what he's doing is super, super cool. And I am like incredibly grateful I was able to do harvest there this past year. Oh, so how was the harvest? It was great. It was, it was really awesome. Um, it was a lot of work, but I mean, that's harvest. That's what you sign up for. Um, and I mean, it's hard to complain about work when you're in a place like Panzano. Um, and the weather was great. <laughs> yeah, did you get to eat Fiorentino and do things uh, Panzano or are you a vegetarian? I, oh no, I'm not a vegetarian. That would yeah. be very hard, especially with my platform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I actually, it's funny you say that, you ask that because I don't think I ate one Fiorentino steak while I was in Tuscany that time. But I did eat a lot of great food, a lot of great food. So as you know, we ask everyone what the, um, so we discover that he's not indeed your favorite wine producers, but that's still okay. <laughs> we have to deal I with who we have way. today. Um, <laughs> but what are we to, what are we expecting to learn from this call today with Michael? Um, I think that, um, well, Michael has a really, 
fascinating perspective on Chianti Classico and the history and the winemaking. And I think he is a really great, gives a really great perspective on like the future of Chianti Classico and also where it stands now. And I think it, um, having him here to, to, uh, to discuss, um, you know, Monte Bernardi and Chianti Classico as a whole will really open up people's eyes to what's happening in this wine region and wine zone. Okay, excellent. Before um, I give the uh, the floor to you, and then you basically take over, I shut up for like about 15 minutes. I will try to come back, although we are currently running uh, Vinitaly International Academy in New York at this very moment. So if you hear a lot of background noise, it's Henry Duvar screaming at me or something like that. I just wanted to ask you guys, I see some friends um, at large here in the audience that I know there's a lot of shit going on in the world right now, but I would like to ask everybody and maybe help us spread the word that, you know, I think right now is not a moment to be righteous because I know that there are a lot of discussions going around about the war. But before you speak, think about, try to understand the situation, because I think it is very difficult moment for everybody. And I just wanted to put it out there because there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate going around, also within our community. And I just, I know, you know, for us, this is a safe place. You can say whatever you want, but also mind, do a little bit of research before you speak out and not be so impulsive. And I know the emotional right now drive is very, very high, but I want us to try to be a little bit more sympathetic and empathetic of, of other people in general and not just ostracize and um, be prejudicial just based on some, you know, um, crazy world events. That's it. I'm going to not sign off, but I'll be closing off my mic for now. So slutty spaghetti, take it away. Okay. All righty. Um, hi, Michael. <laughs> hi, Victoria. How, how are you, how's it going? <laughs> it's great. Thank you. Trying to just start this out on more of a relaxed note. Um, so um, I guess to start off with like a little background. Um, so what drew you to Panzano uh, or Chianti Classico? Uh, it was a family decision. Uh, I was studying winemaking and viticulture in Australia at Adelaide University. And my sister was in Berlin. I had a brother uh, in Santa Barbara, California. And then my parents were in another part of Germany. And uh, the, the scheme was kind of born while I was out in Australia. My sister suggested to my parents that if they retired on a property that had a vineyard, that maybe I could make the wine and she could sell sell it. And uh, that's how the idea of having a family winery was started. And then we, we started looking in Europe because I was born in Italy. I have a, the younger brother born in France. My sister was born in Michigan. I finished high school in Germany, and uh, so we, we lived quite a bit of our life in, in Europe, and 
my uh, parents were thinking of retiring in the south of France. And so we, we, when we started looking for properties, uh, the thing that drew me to Panzano and specifically Monte Bernardi was that I felt like Chianti Classico had everything that I learned when I was studying about wine that would make a wine region produce, let's say, a Grand Cru wine a noble grape, high altitudes, steep slopes, rocky soils, big drop in temperature at night. But so I was intrigued and uh, I wanted to, I felt like coming here to make wine, there was a big opportunity to kind of rediscover and highlight uh, what makes the region so special. That's, that's really awesome. That's, it's kind of fun how things like happen whimsically um, in that way um, and also kind of relate to the past. Um, so being that obviously this is the <clears throat> Italian wine podcast and you being um, American winemaker in a, in a way, um, yep. how did it feel coming to um, Panzano and being one of the only American winemakers in the area? Um, I think, uh, fortunately, the wine industry is very social, uh, and I felt very welcome. A lot of the wine makers were actually around my age. You know, they might not have been the owner, but they were, you know, making the wine. So we had a lot of things, uh, interests in common that we wanted to share with each other. They were very interested to learn what I learned in Australia, and I was very interested to learn about what they were doing and why they were doing the things that they were doing here. So I felt very welcome. Uh, I think coming to here for another for from another industry might be difficult. It is usually hard to crack uh, um, into. Uh, these small regional towns like Panzano, but, but this is a particularly um, welcoming social industry winemaking. So. Um, have you, have you seen like any of those like relationships that you started building when you first arrived in Panzano? Have they, have you seen how, like, like, is there an example, I guess is what I'm saying of how you and another winemaker have influenced each other's uh, process? Um, yeah, I, I'm sure, uh, I, you know, I think to begin with my, I was surprised, um, at the approach that most people were taking. I, uh, it was more a desire to move forward as we call passavanti in Italian where I wanted to kind of go back to traditional roots in winemaking because my experience in Australia was very formative. I started off, uh, you know, learning how to make uh, modern industrial wine and drinking lots of great examples of varietal wines. But what I came to the conclusion of uh, after uh, a few years there is that these wines lacked a sense of place, a sense of history. And so when I knew I was going to take over the 
the kind of leadership and the winemaking and viticulture at Monte Bernardi, I came with a very distinct purpose and idea, and that was to kind of rediscover and return to things that I feel would make the wines more obviously uh, territorial and unique to modern wines. Because unfortunately, I think it's true of many European historic areas and grape varieties. Italy has, I think, something like 800 native grape varieties that a lot of them are kind of dumbed down and pushed towards the center to make them more kind of fruity, round, and and more like everything else on the market. And I think that that's uh, kind of a short-term way of looking at what uh, I would, you know, what I think the producers of this area should do, uh, because after making wine in Australia, I feel like here we have such unique, special gifts, you know, with the soils and, and the native grape varieties that I think long, long answer to your question is I felt like we were going in two opposite directions for the most part. So it was harder for me to um, uh, maybe influence them for sure. I think they thought I was nuts, frankly, uh, okay. returning to Botti Grande, not using varieties that maybe could make the wine darker and richer. Um, just, I, I kind of joke that everything I learned in school over the years, I do the exact opposite. And, and it's not because I'm trying to, it's because I've come to the conclusion that um, what we learn in school is is a standardization. It's to make a kind of a modern everyday wine anywhere in the world. And that's fine if you're in a less special area. But if in your if you're in a special area, you should be trying to make the most authentic and pure example of that native variety. Absolutely. That's, that's, it's super fascinating that, you know, obviously Italy is in the general consumer public seen as, you know, old traditions and <clears throat> sticking to these age old practices. But when you confronted uh, making wine in, in Panzano, it was this drive for modernization, which wasn't actually, well, in, in, in your perspective, wasn't doing much justice to to the wines exactly and, it was kind of ignoring their assets in my opinion uh, if you think of it this way uh it, here in our area in the center of Chianti classico uh, lamale panzano rada higher parts of gaiole higher parts of Can uh, castellina we can make very perfumed aromatic and elegant sangioveses to then push them towards a more rounded, modern, rich style, to me is kind of making wines that can be made anywhere in Tuscany. It just seems, as we would say in Italian, contro senso, against, like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, 
So I think the perspective from Australia, where they made every single grape variety in the world there, and they made good examples of them, made me re realize this, um, that you can't come to an expensive area with very small vineyard plots, rocky soils, harder to work, and make something that can be made anywhere else in the world. You really have to um, strive to... to, um, to uh, show the the uniqueness and, and the special qualities that you have. Absolutely. Um, especially where you are with like such versatility in the soils. Um, on that note, um, do you think you can expand upon um, the different vineyards of Monte Bernardi and maybe touch on what you have planted there and, and why? Um, I know that you, you have more than just Sangiovese and Colorino. So um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, I make it, a, it very easy um, in the sense that I have either Chianti Classico or I have Reserva. I don't believe in Gran Selezione. And if someone wants to ask a question later, why not? I'm happy to answer it. But um, for me, Chianti Classico comes from my young vineyards and Reservas come from my old vineyards. And then within that, those two categories, I might have several labels. Um, right now we have Retro Marcha Chianti Classico and San Joe Chianti Classico. Uh, we have two Chianti Classicos because one is from our existing vineyards that we've had for now uh, almost 20 years that I've been making wine here. This, this vintage will be the 20th. And San Joe comes from newly purchased vineyards that we purchased in December that are in conversion towards organics and biodynamics and come from a different part of Panzano. And for our reservas, we have Monte Bernardi Reserva, which is 95% Sangiovese, 5% Caniolo, and comes from our purely classic Galestro soils, the purple-brown shale, whereas our Sayeta Reserva is 100% Sangiovese and comes only from our Pietroforte sandstone soils. So I try to give a vineyard-based identity to, the, to all our wines that are really easy to understand. I don't, um, you know, I, all, the, the, all my thinking is born from my first passion, which is cooking. And I studied... Uh, in France, and I worked in kitchens uh, most of my young life. And uh, this really um, uh, influenced my way of thinking when I make wine. I read every book I could get my hands on when I was studying to cook, uh, just like I have for winemaking and viticulture when I was studying. And one book that really influenced me from the food side that stuck with me all the way through the wine side is a book written by Waverly Root called The Food of France. And in this book, I think it was written in the 60s, he divided the book up uh, by fats that the, the cook would cook with. So uh, Fran he divided France up by the the fats that the 
that the area would cook with. So in the north, they had cows and milk and butter, and they cooked with milk and butter. In the south, they had olive trees and they cooked with olive oil. In other parts, they had, you know, goose liver or chicken fat. And, and it was just so eye-opening and made me realize, you know, that not only did that influence the food that was made and the, and the regional dishes, but it also in, it influenced the wines that that kind of the grape varieties and the styles that were made to fit with those foods. And to me, that's something that we don't think about very much anymore. And so by turning back and going to more what I would say traditional uh, way of approaching my winemaking, I would be um, making wines that are much more suited for our regional dishes that complement and don't outshine the food. And, and I think that's something that's really important. Uh, it, it's also uh, influences very strongly the way I make my wines too, which we can get to later, I'll explain to that. But uh, that's, that's kind of like the base of the way I think about everything I do is, is very much from kind of a cooking uh, kind of way of expressing things as well. So I use a lot of cooking metaphors when I describe things. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really fascinating, actually, because I think, you know, and something that's been um, great, I think, about the expansion of wine education nowadays is reminding ourselves of, you know, like you match what grows on the land, like, you know, was it what go what grows together goes together? That's a, the saying. Yes. What grows together mm -hmm. goes together. Yep. Um, which is really, really important. And I, I don't want to, so you said a lot of great things, so I want to make sure I remember the questions to ask you following this, but I definitely want to go into <clears throat> your winemaking approach and to continue the conversation on how that, um, reflects the land and matches the regional dishes. So if, do you want to dive a little bit more into your winemaking approach? Sure, sure. I mean, so following on that, that thread, uh, that idea of how I think, um, as a, a good chef or cook would um, cook, you would cook with no recipe and you would want the best ingredients. And that, you know, to me, the way we make wine and wine, modern winemaking right now, it's kind of like a witch's brew cocktail with like eye of newt and fish bladder and animal hooves and, you know, powdered tannins. And I, I thought to myself when I got my first experience uh, in a winery in Australia and I had to mix powdered tannins in a bucket before dumping in the tank, I thought, I would never eat this. Why on earth would I drink this? You know, uh, to me, we're growing a fruit and instead of cooking it, we're fermenting it, but it's no different. So in order to make the purest expression of my place, it also to me should not be um, doctored, let's say with products and even yeast and bacteria. And we, so we, we ferment naturally. Uh, we don't, we've never added any product to our wine except for sulfur dioxide. We've never fined, we've never filtered. It's not really, it was never a 
political natural wine idea as much as it was this idea to pull out the territory and and basically i think what those things do modern technology and products they either take something away from that typicity or they cover something of in that from that natural characteristic so just like making food even bariques to me a good cook who would use a spice like cinnamon or clove or something wants to use it at a level where you kind of see it there you know there's something there but you almost can't identify it and it gives a complexity to it if i ever have wood in my wine that's how i would want it to be perceived i would wouldn't want it to be obviously in the wine. And to me, that's something that can be bought and added like like a spice. And if you have excellent ingredients, why on earth would you do that? That's an amazing point, especially when you were saying how like, if I'm, I'm not going to eat this, so why would I drink it? And um, I think that understanding um, the production side of everything we consume is really important. Um, and not to, you know, pivot away from wine, but just to make that point, um, something that we should consider as we choose our wines, um, and also why, obviously, they have these Italian wine chats. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so I know that you also kind of reflect the same methodology in your vineyards. You farm organically and biodynamically. Um, I'm assuming that was more of a choice because you were reflecting the old school methods, not because you're trying to follow any kind of trend. <laughs> well, definitely not a trend because I didn't, I don't think it was fashionable um, when I started. The way biodynamics was, um, uh, let's say, brought to my attention was when I was in Australia and I was buying food ingredients in the local central market uh, store, uh, market, open market, I was buying organic uh, things and occasionally things labeled with biodynamics. And I didn't really pay attention to it. I didn't know what biodynamics meant. I, I just assumed it was still just organic and not much more to it. And after a short while of, I started to realize that I liked the ones with the biodynamic mark more than the organic mark. I thought there was something more to them. And I specifically remember eggs and orange juice as being the standout items that uh, really made me wonder more about biodynamics. And then so I started researching and reading about biodynamics. And I did not connect to the Steiner and Jolie kind of mystical, I'm super pragmatic and kind of scientific in the way I approach things. Uh, I need to have the reason behind what I'm doing, uh, at least so I can not do it or do it. Uh, I can't, I've never been that type of person to say, I don't know why it works, but it works, which is the common refrain that I hear from biodynamic kind of followers. Um, I had to research the microbiological kind of um, underpinnings that made me understand biodynamics better and uh, allowed me to apply it more liberally and in a way that I think most uh, diehard biodynamic people are farming in a way that is not 
the way the old farmers would farm. It's too, uh, it's too, it's unrealistic, you know, for example, picking only on fruit or flower days would be picking four days out of every two weeks. It's, it's absolutely absurd to think that a contadino would have that kind of luxury of time to not pick based on the fruit or flower day, or a lot of these things are kind of Steiner and tune things for explaining these old great practices that I believe strongly in, but putting a kind of a mystical twist to explain it. Whereas I went deeper and found the kind of microbiological explanations for why they work. And that allowed me to then stir it in a flow form, spray it with a quad bike or my tractor, because I understood what I was doing and what I was creating. That's that's actually really interesting because it's almost like, well, because, you know, being a farmer is and was a, a form of a business. And, you know, you can't really leave your business up to luck or, or just um, a random set of rules that you don't know will actually work. So I think that's really it's really um, wise to dive deeper into it and and not take away, you know, the romanticism that we all love of wine, but to find a way to still produce like a, a delicious product. Uh, I hate to call wine a product, but a delicious, um, you know, wine um, um, in the end that's still reflective of the terroir, still organic, biodynamic. Um, yeah. I'm not quite sure how much time we have on this because it's yeah. my first time here. But, um, oh, Laika, do you, are, are we good on time? <laughs> yeah, if you're on time. Okay, uh, great. All good. Okay, great. I just wanted to make sure where I guide my questions um, don't lead us Victoria, too far down the road. One, one more thing about the, the aspect. So not only did I think I could produce better fruit and thereby make better wine, but it was also an aspect that I didn't want to have fruit in my fields that my kids couldn't just go and pick off and put into their mouths. You know, um, so there was an aspect of that as well uh, that led me to say, we're only going to farm organically or biodynamically because I'm not going to have something out there that I have to tell my kids they can't put in their mouths. That's that's a really valid point. And also goes back to like, if I'm not going to eat this, why would I drink it um, kind of methodology of um, and also things just being natural. Right. It's it's kind of frightening to tell someone they can't eat something that grows from the earth um, yeah. and then, you know, go ahead and sell the, the product to someone in the future. It, it doesn't make sense. Um, well, I wanted to go back to um, your comment on the Gran Selezione um, because I think it's a fascinating one. And also because they just announced last year that there's the new UGAs um, in great. County Classico. Yeah. And I wanted to open up the floor to you to talk about your involvement in that and also your perspective on Gran Selecciona. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, basically, the, the, the concept of Gran Selecciona, I can't really remember anymore what year we found out about it as producers. I want to say roughly 2016 or so, but it could be even before that. And me and other small, smaller producers kind of like um, were shocked that they this was the way that the consortia wanted to 
go to promote the region, uh, let's say a grand reserva in, uh, in what we as producers for, for quite some time were talking about was the need to focus on uh, teaching and spreading the word about the subregions of Chianti Classico because Chianti Classico is a pretty large region. It's 8,000 hectares of vineyards or 20,000 acres. That's the same amount of Pinot Noir planted in Burgundy, basically. And it, imagine every Pinot Noir leaving Burgundy with just the Burgundy name on the label without all the subzones and and the vineyard names and the crews and the premier crews and grand crews. It's unfathomable. And so we thought um, that if we move the conversation to subzones, Panzano, Rada, Castellina, all these uh, different subzones of of Chianti Classico, not only would we pique more interest in learning about our region, but we would also sidestep that annoying question about the difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico, which is a totally legitimate question, but it doesn't move um, the understanding of our region forward. It's kind of, we get stuck on this technicality essentially that Chianti Classico is the true original and only territory of Chianti. Then Duke Grand Cosimo decided to expand the, the area that could use the name Chianti to help other regions of Tuscany sell their wine. And that's when uh, we our region became Kent Classico. So that's the reason behind the, the discussion, but it's not helpful for us as Kent Classico producers to, to talk about that difference. It doesn't help people understand our region better. So by moving it towards the subzones and making people understand that there's such a wide diversity in altitudes, soils, and, and uh, you know, and temperature medians and, and all these different, uh, you know, slope uh, steepness and things like that, uh, they all make different expressions of Sangiovese and Chianti Classico. And so we all agree that that should be done. Even now, the consortium, the problem is, is they want to start it with the Grand Selecciones, not with the Chianti Classicos or the Reservas. And to me, that's like excuse my language, ask backwards. <laughs> it's, um, you know, Grand Selezioni for me is basically a category that was created to make a super Tuscan within my region. So it epitomizes the thing that I don't like about um, the direction we're taking our region, making it, dumbing it down, moving it towards the center, uh, and then allowing only that super Tuscan type category to be able to highlight the subzone is like, to me, it's, it's really, it doesn't give any credibility to the Ugas right off the bat, because those wines don't reflect the subzones. That's an interesting perspective, um, in the sense that like, when you started talking about how, you know, you wouldn't just name all the wines in Burgundy, Burgundy, um, and, and still their um, wines, you know, are they, they have different crews, but they still maintain the identity of their place. And I think that also, I mean, it's Burgundy, of course, but that's that level of prestige that comes with the name with Burgundy wines 
um, the level of prestige for something in like Chianti Classico wines, of course, maybe on a global scale isn't like it's not as large, but that is because of these kinds of um, particulars. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's 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 because these kind of um, decisions made by the consortium are often um, watered down or chosen to satisfy. Um, commercial bottlers and not the small farmers making uh, kind of more uh, high quality uh, Chianti Classico wines of the region. So it's it is a it's against the direction that I think would improve the image the best. And think about also um, Barolo and Barbaresco. I mean, everyone wants to have different, you know, communes of Barolo on their shelves in a wine shop. But if you go to a wine shop and you present your, your Panzano Chianti Classico, they're going to say, well, I already have two other Chianti Classicos, you know. Uh, so that's the kind of the missing element. It gives also a much broader, larger possibility for us as producers to sell our wines because they will be looked at as having a lot more diversity in 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 availabilities and qualities and and uniquenesses i guess if that's a word <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i i think you know and even for me that really resonates with me because Prior to me really diving into my own Italian wine study, um, being in wine shops, uh, you know, you you know that they have a Chianti Classico and you're just like, okay, yeah, I've seen the Chianti Classico. Okay, cool. And you kind of just bypass the section unless you're looking for that particular, um, you know, you are looking for a Chianti Classico. Um, and I think like you said, it really would eliminate that discussion that I have all the time about differentiating, you know, Chianti from Chianti uh, Colisenesi from Chianti Classico and having people actually um, become more interested and more inspired by the wines. Um, I also think it's interesting that you say about the um, these new regulations catering more to large-scale producers when, you know, a lot of the um, the original point I may be wrong. I think that um, what what's interesting is that, you know, for the uh, DOCs and DOCGs, one of the original points is the authenticity and something that's a bit controversial. Um, and, you know, having these denominations um, and location-wise for County Classico would, would cater right to that idea. So... I think I think it's an interesting discussion, one that's um, I hope that can, you know, I hope that County Classico can be involved in in the future. Um, and so. With regards to that, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm, I get a little nervous with these clubhouse <laughs> uh, discussions. Um, what do you um, like? How do you see the future of County Classico? You know, with the new movement, with um, the, the changes in um, the DOCGs and and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's difficult to say in the sense that uh, you know I think the consortium uh, has really good objectives a lot of the time and does a lot of great things to promote. Our, our region and the producers, but we have to understand that these kind of decisions 
are voted on and the votes are weighted based on how many fascetti, the little tax stickers, you purchase as a winery. So essentially, the bigger you are, the more votes you have for anything that we vote on. So it basically makes it very difficult for small producers to make changes in the right direction because they're always squashed by the heavy voters of the commercial bottlers and and the like. Um, So that makes it difficult right off the bat. There's also, um, so there seems to be an internal uh, movement uh, since about 2015, where we have um, a set of guidelines of how wine should be made. It's called the disciplinario. And it basically says what the characteristics of each type of wine should have. Uh, and one uh, disturbing uh, direction there is that they changed the wording. Uh, and now, let's say, uh, Chianti Classico Reserva, which used to be under the Chianti Classico kind of um, guidelines would say that the color varies from subregion to subregion. Well, that's been crossed out, and now it says the Reserva has to be Rubino, Rosso, Intenso, so dark red, which doesn't really make any sense. Sangiovese isn't inherently a dark-colored variety, and the color varies greatly on the weather. So in cooler a weather with higher acid, you have a more vibrant, uh, uh, intenser color, but it's never really dark. And in warmer years, you have a lighter kind of more um, towards Brunello almost color of Sangiovese. Um, so these kind of pushes are, I describe it as kind of like Wizard Wizard of Oz behind the curtain kind of decisions. They're being made before the wine is even authorized for sale. And it's forcing kind of this modern concept of wine onto wines of our region and not letting consumers decide because they, they, they can reject your wine now saying that it's too lightly colored. Carenza di intensità, for example. So to me, that's a disturbing trend because um, I, even though I don't like the modern trend and the Gran Selezioni, I think their being in the market expands the appeal of Chianti Classico as a whole. Uh, I don't want to tell anyone how to make their Chianti Classicos. You know, I hope younger generation. Uh, growers and not just in Chianti Classico, but throughout Italy, uh, kind of break away from this modern way of thinking uh, that every wine has to be soft, supple, darker, you know, all the things that points have pushed basically every wine towards, and that they start to embrace the unique characteristics of every native grape and really try to uh, grow the best version of that grape and and then make it in the most simple way to to 
to exhibit it in its purity and its beauty that made it that grape variety that was chosen for generations and generations to be the best grape and wine for the food of that area. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy phenomenon that, um, that um, you know, we can define consumer tastes and like expectations rather than, you know, allowing consumers to enjoy what, you know, what they like to enjoy. Um, especially with a place like, you know, uh, wines from from County Glasgow or Tuscany or Italy in general, because there's incredible versatility um, and you know variability in grape varietals, um, and that's interesting. I did not know about the color that there was a there was an actual rule about the the color that um, the reserva should be. Um, you wouldn't know unless you're a producer, you wouldn't know, or if a producer would tell you because it's behind the curtain, Mm -hmm. you know, so you wouldn't know. And, uh, it, I am one who, when I hit, you know, when I'm confronted with those kind of challenges, I raise my voice and say, no, no, this is not okay. And so every time I have, um, those kind of conflicts, I, I speak about it more, I bring it to light more, but I have friends who have, you know, blended away that wine or, uh, you know, uh, sold it off because they, they're too shy to sell it as a non-Chianti Classico Reserva or, or a Chianti, you know, even Chianti Classico. So it's not, uh, it's not something that is spoken about too, too freely, uh, but it should be because um, it should not be decided by a three-person tasting panel or five-person tasting panel uh, made up of wine consultant, you know, psalms who pass some test and then uh, have a little sheet on the side and says, is this dark color, light color? You know, it's just... Uh, I agree that wine should be tasted for faults and we don't want like wines that are completely shot or, or very defective to be released under Chianti Classico. But once you get past that, it becomes much more subjective and it should not be decided before. If someone doesn't like my wine, they don't buy another bottle of Montepinari. It's not like they don't buy any more Chianti Classico. It's kind of absurd uh, notion to to try to decide what uh, these wines should be like. I mean, absolutely, and it's um, it's the it's the livelihood of you know these winemakers like yourself. Like, so it's almost like you you don't blame them for shying away just in fear of not being able to sell their wines. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's really courageous of you to stand up for what you believe in, in your winemaking practices. Um, so I believe we're starting to wrap up, but one last question, um, just to end it on a fun note and, um, open up the discussion. If we are doing a Q and a, uh, what do you like, what's your favorite thing to drink right now besides your own wine? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love drinking wines from outside of Tuscany in general because I obviously drink, I have a lot of opportunity to drink wines from Tuscany. Um, I probably would say, on average, my house white is either Shannon or from the Loire Valley or 
or maybe um, Muscadet or Champagne, but uh, uh, I, I love diversity. I would say that um, I'm always looking for wines that are balanced and, and great expressions, and I don't try not to um, drink the same thing over and over. So, but uh, um, I would say, if I had to pick one thing, it would probably be Shannon at the moment. Shannon is delicious. It's not Italian, but it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you right, ask well, me Italian? Sorry. Did no, say... I didn't. I, okay, I let okay. it. I let you okay. choose. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I'm now. I have to turn it over to Stevie. Okay. Hey. My pleasure. Wow. Thank what? You, what? Um, so you gave us some like industry secrets there. I love it. <laughs> now everybody knows. The behind the scenes, <laughs> you know, five other thousand people will know, that's for sure. Listen, Michael, um, I do have, I, we don't have that much time, so I will uh -huh. ask you a couple of questions. Number sure. one, how many wines do you make? How many bottles? Can, can you give me some sure, context? Sure. We um, uh, make, we have uh, 25 hectares that we make 125,000 bottles on, Intergromenti Prodotto, which means we don't buy a kilo of grape or a liter of wine, making those, those range. And that's, I think, six or seven labels. <laughs> and then we have... I see goat. five labels on your website. Yeah, that's, our website is so out of date, it's not yeah, even funny. And that kind of so, brings me to my second question, which you're is... You're talking to our web designer at the moment, too. Yeah, I know, sure. honey. This is very sad <laughs> because this, is, this was my second question because, yeah. first of all, do you not believe in social media? Like, I mean, what the it's hell? I, I don't, don't even see it. Yeah. I can't even find you on Instagram. I know. I know. And you have these beautiful photos, you yeah. know, the galleries. Put them on an Insta account. Yeah. Do you not want to be found? No. You're so doing a very good is, job. Thank you. Uh, the thing <laughs> is, is I do, so we do have a Facebook page, Montepinardi, and then... No one's the, on Facebook anymore, Michael. I know, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then Instagram, it's me doing Montepinardi from me. The thing is... is I know, but I, you have a private account. Right, 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 right. That's true, too. I, I don't want I to, like, go it's down on you really, you know... Thing told me the same thing it's more the fact that it would fall on my shoulders at the moment that's what well, we you know I you know I um I have to tell you a secret okay you can actually hire somebody <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it doesn't have to be you don't have to be a one-man show it's listen we, Victoria you should help him you're the expert yeah, we've She's had offered. this discussion oh my god She's this offered. is terrible you have okay. to i think you have such an interesting um story to tell and i don't know if your wine is any good i've not tasted i have to say but you i love the pictures they're beautiful you should put thank it on you. insta nobody's on facebook yeah, okay no all right i didn't want to come down on you so no, hard no, no. but i think it's, it's very, very deserving Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Michael. I, it was a really uh, fantastic conversation. Thank you. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for doing a great job. Victoria, uh, you didn't need to be thank nervous. You. I don't understand. You're so friendly, and I feel like I can give you the mic or a camera anytime. You're ready, set to go. And then you're like, oh, I'm shy. I love it. I love these <laughs> millennials. So listen, I'm going to close up the room, boys and girls, because also I think Henry Duvar here is finishing up, so I have to just see what's going on. But I do see Kevin 
Kevin was our top student from July's edition New York via, and he will be hosting March 22nd, Giacomo Colombera. Uh, from Alto Piemonte. Next week, we have Fanny Bruel. She's um, fr this, this Italian wine ambassador from France with a terribly French accent. And she will be interviewing Federico Giuntini from Salvapiana. After that, we have uh, Wayne Youngs with Ronchi di Cialla, the Rapuzzi brothers. On and on and on. We have all the entire program. We'll take a short break during the, of course, the Vinitoli uh, Marathon because we will all be in apnea, but we'll be coming back shortly before and after that. So stay tuned, everybody. Laika, do you want to say anything? So next week, we're also going to have another series. So this is in partnership with um, EJ Gallo Winery. Um, so um, they're going to have um, a clubhouse, which is under the Wine Business Club. So it's um, in another club, right? Yeah. Yes, it's another club. So we are now under Italian Wine Club, but the other one is the Wine Business. So we'll have Sarah Bray. Um, she's going to interview Giuseppe Tornatore. Who is um, the producer PM, from Etna. Yes, at 7 yep. p.m. Italian time zone. Okay, great. Listen, thank you so much, Michael. Hello to Jennifer and Victoria. Hope to see you soon. Are you coming back to Vinitaly? I'm not quite sure. Come back, come back. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm we love your back. energy, so come back. Thank you. <laughs> okay. okay. And Michael, I hope to meet you in person sometime. I yes. do believe you thank even you. came to my office. You got interviewed by Monty. Didn't notice he, that. Yeah, he did it at, no, actually he did it at Montebernardi and it was the oh, series okay. where he interviewed five producers all at Montebernardi. He asked me to choose the producers. Oh, uh, uh, okay, so you and Monty are buds. I get it. Yeah, yeah, I've known Monty since the beginning. I don't want to know. That's too much information. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. Listen, you guys, I'm going to sign off. Thank okay. you, everybody, thank you, so for, you. for joining. Thank you, Slavek, Melissa, Kevin, get ready. Now you know what to do. Justine, Sandra, Challenge Sandra, Paul, of course, and who else is on? Okay, that's it. I'm signing off. Ciao, everybody. Ciao. Thank Ciao. you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.